Now for the reading of God's word from 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 6. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would, re- we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Open our eyes to your gospel, to the good news that you've given us. Let your light shine on us and shine through Cooney as he brings your word to us today. Let your light shine not to blind us, to fill us with your glory. Shine your light on our hearts and let us bring your light into the world this week. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Here on uh, this first Sunday of Pastor Andrew's sabbatical, uh, we get to kick off this series where we're thinking about passages etched on our hearts. Um, And I hope that as you come away from this Sunday, uh, that this passage of Scripture uh, would be etched on your heart as well. Uh, Author and historian Yuval Noah Harari Uh, teaches at Hebrew National University. He talks about how stories are the glue that holds social organizations together. They make it possible for human beings to do things that no other organism can do. I think there's a grain of truth there in the fact that uh, we are truly rallied around those stories that we share in common. And in fact, this is true for uh, the Christian church as well. We are united by the story of Jesus and all that God has been doing in this world from the day of creation till now and into the future forevermore. That is why we're gathered here, is it not? Similarly, uh, every organization, uh, as uh, Dr. Harari speaks to, every organization needs a story to rally around. The ministry that I serve with in Japan called Christ Bible Institute, um, it's a seminary that seeks to equip Japanese people for the ministry, uh, both locally in the city of Nagoya and throughout Japan and uh, in the rest of Asia as, as people are sent out. Our vision, uh, it, it actually comes from this passage in 2 Corinthians, but our vision is for the gospel of the glory of Christ to be cherished and proclaimed in Japan for the gospel of the glory of Christ to be cherished and proclaimed in Japan. That's a story that that unites us. 
and we find exactly how Paul uses this beautiful statement to motivate not only his own ministry, uh, not only to validate his own ministry, but he invites us to, to receive that vision as our own as we seek to live out as Jesus' disciples as well. This passage is, is packed with that vision that you see in verses 4 and 6 in particular, where it talks about the light and all that that means for us. This passage is also packed with incredibly practical directives and challenging application that Paul gives uh, to those that are sharing this gospel. He's speaking, of course, to the Corinthian church. Uh, this um, is in the middle of the first century, right? a few decades after uh, the ministry of Christ uh, on earth. And the Corinthian church is in an interesting situation where they are an established community, a fairly wealthy community, a fairly diverse community. They're in, in the Greek part of, of the Roman Empire, uh, fairly far away from Jerusalem, of course, where, where all this began. And while they are very powerful in some ways, they're also a very needy and messed up community. Right? Paul writes his first letter, uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, calling them out on many aspects of their life together, saying how they have strayed uh, from the gospel in which they were founded. He talks about how they failed to understand what the gospel was and what the kingdom of God was all about. And scholar summarizes their brokenness by pointing to how competitive the Corinthians were against one another, how they were partisan, how they were proud to the point of arrogance, how they emphasized individual experience over the collective and the communal how they tolerated and allowed gross sin in their midst. And they insisted that they had the right to live as they pleased. And most of all, as we're reminded in 1 Corinthians 13, they lacked love. They had fallen away from the love of God that had once wooed them to faith in the first place. And so Paul not only wrote the first letter, um, and uh, following several other letters that he likely wrote to the Corinthian church, we now have uh, this letter of 2 Corinthians, where he is once again exhorting this church to remember and to rest in the gospel of Jesus. Because the mission that they have received to proclaim, this is rooted in, in, in the gospel as they receive it themselves. In this passage, we're, we're going to go in order as Paul describes it, but I want you to notice how these two verbs of proclaiming and beholding are, are really two sides of the same coin. Going back to our passage, Paul begins saying, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. What is this ministry that he's talking about? This is the ministry, of course, of proclaiming Jesus as Lord of sharing the gospel in, in their midst with both people from within the church, building them up as disciples of Christ and sharing that out in their community as they, as they serve with love and good deeds alongside 
pointing people to their only hope and Savior. This is the mission that Jesus gave to Paul on the road to Damascus and that these people now rest in today. This is the ministry of the New Covenant. In the the passage preceding um, uh, chapter 4, he talks about how, how Jesus takes back the veil and how he makes a reconciliation, a reconciliation with God, a reconciliation with the Father that was not possible through Moses and the law alone. We are proclaiming a Jesus that unites us to God, uh, proclaiming a Jesus who fulfills all of the Old Covenant, all of the Old Testament as a true prophet, as a true priest, as a true king. This is the Jesus that they proclaimed and that we are called to proclaim today too. Secondly, we're reminded that this mission is a ministry given by mercy to Paul. Paul, in in these verses from 1 through 6, he's reflecting, as I mentioned, on that moment uh, on the Damascus Road where Paul, though he was a a very zealous and passionate Jew who was teaching the law of Moses, who was trying to protect the purity of God's people, and saw it as his mission to oust this heresy that he thought, the way of Jesus. And so he is doing this thing, and what happens on Damascus Road, Jesus comes before him, blinding him with his light. Paul falls to the ground and asks, Who are you, Lord? Jesus says, It is I whom you are persecuting. Paul is reflecting on how him, in his own personal call to to know Jesus and to then be sent out as an apostle to the Gentiles, that Paul did absolutely nothing while he was on that road to somehow summon the presence of Jesus, right? That would be absurd to think that way. Why did God do this? It was in his great mercy that he stopped Paul from his erroneous ways and called him back, called him back to to the, the loving relationship, the right relationship with God that Paul was seeking all along and yet misplaced. God in his mercy enters in into the lives of broken and sinful and rebellious people and gives us a vision of life gives us a vision of living in this world that is in line with with his will, not only for his glory, but that is our very joy, too. As Paul is reflecting on this ministry that he has received, he talks in the following verses, uh, from verse 2 on, about uh, how we are to go about this mission. He talks about how uh, we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. Right, this points to a level of honesty and integrity that is not willing to compromise, not willing to deceive. Is that reflective of the way that we carry ourselves as followers of Jesus too? Are we committed 
to the truth of the scripture of expounding that uh, not only with loving kindness, but with, with boldness rooted in the fact that this is God's word given to us? Or are we tempted to bend things in order to appease our audience in such a way that distorts the truth of God's word? Next, Paul talks about a steadfastness and a trust in this ministry that is not prone to haste or to coerce. You see this in verse 3 and 4, how, in fact, it is, though it is Paul who is sharing the gospel and who is engaging with the people, it is not Paul who saves. It is not Paul who can go into someone's heart and mind and to force them to believe something. Who is it? It's God. It is God who who veils and unveils. It is God who who brings people to a right knowledge of him. It's God who gives faith where there is no faith, life where there is no life. And so Paul can rest and go after this mission with a steadfastness and a trust, knowing that all these things are happening in, in God's timing and not his. We also see a humility and a servant heart. In verse 5, it says, We proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. Though Paul was certainly in a position of authority, he was very learned, and he had had this charismatic experience meeting Jesus that had transformed his life. And, and yet, he approaches this community and sees himself as a servant to them. Uh, laying down his life for the sake of these people as he reflects the way that Jesus has laid down his life for them. That is the type of gospel ministry that Paul is exhorting us to even today, one that is humble, that is servant-hearted, one that is steadfast and trusts the Lord for his timing, one that is honest and filled with integrity, we see the quality of a life shaped by proclaiming Jesus that is holding to that as our very mission. As we move through this passage, you might have noticed something that is a little confusing. <laughs> um, at least I found it to be a little bit confusing. You look at verses 2 and 5 side by side. Paul talks about how in verse 2, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. He says we would commend ourselves to others. Yet in verse 5, he says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves. This is, this is interesting. What does Paul mean by that? Incidentally, this is a dynamic that actually happens throughout this letter of 2 Corinthians, where sometimes Paul talks about commending oneself as a negative action that ought to be avoided. He says, we do not commend ourselves, or do you think that I am commending myself? In fact, that is not what I'm doing, right? Things like that. And yet, also throughout the book, several times, actually more times than he speaks of it in the negative, more times does he talk about commending ourselves to others in the sight of God as a 
positive action. In fact, as how we ought to go about with, uh, for the gospel ministry. For us modern readers, this might be very confusing because it sounds like Paul might just be talking about some kind of self-promotion or self-aggrandizement. You're boasting about your own religious experience and using that to share with others, saying, look at what, uh, look at me, look at what I have experienced and believed, and therefore you should too. And yet, Paul, we know that's not what he's saying, because he speaks of the ministry as, as one that comes to, to serve and to not uh, boast about oneself, but one that exalts Jesus. So how do, how does this, uh, this, um, what looks as self-promotion, how does that come together with what Paul is showing forth as a winsome gospel promotion? Uh, there must be a way that these two things are held together. Yesterday, uh, we had our first real, real spring, real summery day, didn't we? Uh, it was 80 degrees, and it's hard to believe that just six, seven days ago, it was literally snowing right, the day after Easter. I don't know if any of you other, uh, others had to scrape off snow in your car Monday morning. Um, and just that, that juxtaposition, um, where now we're in shorts. I see some people are actually here in shorts, uh, enjoying the weather, certainly. Um, you know, sunlight is, is funny, um, because not only does it uh, really just warm us, and, and it, it brings about sort of a joy that is unexplainable, right? We actually also need it uh, physiologically, right? Uh, our bodies depend on the sun, not just for warmth, but uh, many of you know also to create vitamin D. Right? In our skin, uh, we have what is the precursor of vitamin D, uh, called pre-vitamin D, and what happens is the sunlight comes and it hits our skin, and in the epidermis, this chemical reaction happens right, where the energy of the UV light breaks apart the bonds in this molecule. And this pre-vitamin D, the electrons are moving around, bonds are breaking, it's shuffling around, it's spinning, and then it, once it's resettled, it forms this, uh, this material that can then be sent out throughout the rest of your body to your liver and your kidney uh, to be made into a usable vitamin that strengthens our bones, that helps our gut, our immune system, and all this other function uh, that is necessary to our body. I bring this up to say uh, that it's interesting how God has made us uh, dependent on his light physiologically as well. In a, and the way that that happens in our bodies is through a breaking and a recreating uh, to form what it is that we truly need. It takes a, a recreation. Well, Paul talks about light in this passage in the same way. In, in verse 6, he says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness. What passage do you think of uh, when you read that? Where might God have said, let light shine out of darkness? Well, we read it earlier in our service today. Though it's not the exact same words verbatim, Paul is 
very clearly pointing to Genesis 1, where darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And so Paul is saying the same God who said, let light shine where there was darkness. Uh, This same God is doing this act of recreation in us as well. That that's what happens uh, when Paul meets Jesus on Damascus Road. That's what happens when we encounter uh, the Jesus who is the lover of our souls. But it takes God's illumination. In uh, the previous chapter, it talks about how uh, through this illumination, it is that through that, that God turns our faces to behold him. And when we turn to the Lord, that veil is renewed. And so it's by the light that we are enabled to see. And it is by that same light that we're able to turn to the Lord and to behold Jesus. You see, verse 4 and 6 are similar in some ways. There's that similar phrase, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, in verses 4. And verse 6, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see these uh, two lights, it's talking about the same thing in different ways, but these two lights that allow those who believe uh, to see, to see properly. In verse 4, Paul is referring to something that hasn't happened for those who don't believe, uh, for those who are resistant to yielding their lives to Jesus, uh, for those who perhaps haven't heard and yet in their very nature are rebellious towards their creator, perhaps for those who have grown up amidst a gospel a de- proclaiming community, and yet are still wrestling with lots of questions about the reality of Jesus and what he teaches and what that means for my life, for your life. He says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing. Uh, This is uh, showing to us, reminding us that in fact, Uh, There's much more going on than us simply making mental assent to deny such and such thing about the Christian faith, but actually our very world and the God of this world, namely the evil one, is opposed to us coming to a right knowledge of God, to a right relationship with God. And so they haven't seen the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And yet, just as we're reminded in the negative that this is what hasn't happened for some, in the way that Paul reminds us in verse 6, this is in fact what has happened for those who have believed. Uh, John Calvin, a theologian, talks about uh, the centrality and and the meaning of this uh, here in his institutes as he says, as long as Christ remains outside of us, we are separated from him. All that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and no value to us. 
Right? That's that state of, of blindness and separation. But Christ became ours to dwell within us, and our mystical union with Christ has the highest importance. You see what? It makes all the difference between the former state of being veiled and stuck in unbelief and stuck apart from God to those that are illumined by him is the work of Jesus in that person's life. See, because the light is of the gospel, which is of the glory of Christ. It's about Jesus. Right? The gospel displays how Jesus is king, how his kingdom now has come, how we sung week in and week out during the series of the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus, the perfectly righteous one, has fulfilled God's law. As Paul puts it in uh, chapter 5, that, um, that for our sake, God, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. All right, Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, tells us that he is the atoning sacrifice. He's the propitiation for our sins. He has made us clean. He has redeemed us. He's defeated death, and he gives us the victory. In Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, there's that famous passage in chapter 15 where he cries out, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus. Jesus defeats death and gives us victory in him. And who is this Jesus? He is the very image of God. This is another one of those verses that points us to the creation story, doesn't it? Right? We're reminded that in the beginning we were created in the image of God, and yet in our sin we are marred, and our, the, the image of God that we reflect, as uh, Calvin puts it, is so mangled, though it is there, uh, to the point where it is often irrecognizable in our sin, in our brokenness, in our rebellion against him. And so that's why we need Jesus, who is in fact the true image of God, and who is in fact the one in whom we are recreated to correctly reflect the image of God that has been given to us and in which we are created. Uh, Secondly, from verse 6, we see that this light is of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It begins with this knowledge. It's not just a statement that hangs out there in the air, but it is a knowledge. And what does that mean? That means it's something that is personal, that we apprehend, that uh, we, uh, that we uh, etch into our mind and into our heart that changes who we are. And it's of the glory of God. Uh, this is what is illuminated. Uh, it's, it's to God, the creator, that we are reconciled. And all this happens in the face of Jesus, this is where we see it. You, the call is to proclaim and to behold. But we are able to behold uh, just as we are able to pro- proclaim only by the mercy and the illumination that God gives to us. Enlightenment is kind of an interesting word. 
um, most of us probably think about enlightenment as something that uh, gets talked about in Eastern thought, um, whether it's Buddhism or Hinduism or things like that. And, and yet, that concept of enlightenment to a, to a true apprehension of reality, to a true knowledge of the way forward, is that not reflected also in the Christian story too? Because we too are enlightened by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, by the work of Christ's gospel being declared and cherished in our lives. Uh, over the course of the semester um, with uh, uh, college-age guys, we've been studying the book of Ecclesiastes. And one of the refrains that you hear over and over again in the book of Ecclesiastes is the vanity of all the toil under the sun. And what's that talking about? That's just talking about the vanity that we experience in this earth if this earth is all that we're fixing our eyes on. It talks about how Though some may find success, though some may find failure, though some may uh, find pleasure, though some may find sorrow, in the end, it all comes to an end. And so what's the point? Uh, the, the conclusion of Ecclesiastes is there is no point if all we see is creation and the created order. It's all in vain. And yet the flip side of that truth is that what happens when we are not just under the sun as a created order, but under a true light of God? What happens when a person's life is reoriented around fearing God and keeping his commandments? There is a joy and a gratitude for all the things of this life as it has been given to us as a gift from him. And all of our lives and all of this world is seen now as uh, something that points to God's glory. And that's a beautiful thing, even though we recognize the toil and the vanity of this world. See, there's an enlightenment that happens when we see the world rightly and when we see ourselves rightly in light of who God is. As I was thinking about this experience, I uh, remembered the time that I got to summit Mount Fuji in Japan when I was in college. Uh, it was the summer of my sophomore year in college, and I spent uh, four years at university um, in Japan. And at the end of the semester, I went uh, over to Mount Fuji with some friends, um, and we started the hike up the mountain around, oh, maybe 3, 4 p.m. You might think that's an odd time to start climbing a mountain. <laughs> Uh, well, it is, uh, unless you're trying to get there uh, for the sunrise. And that's what many people do uh, when they climb Mount Fuji, um, because that is, in fact, the most beautiful time uh, to see it. But to get there to the sunrise, it involves, uh, you know, really nice climbing at the very beginning during uh, the dusk, and it starts to get cooler, right, and it's very beautiful. You see the sun uh, setting, things like that. Um, but then all of a sudden, once you get to sort of the upper limits of the mountain, right, it's sort of very rocky, it's a craggy crags, and you know, it's this very narrow trail that kind of winds back and forth. Um, some sections with slippery sand, and you just have to keep your footing. All the while, you're battling uh, altitude sickness. 
Um, and it's dark. It's very dark. And even though Japan in the summertime is very hot, uh, once you're that high up, it's incredibly cold. Right? You're exposed to the wind. You're exposed to all the elements, and you're just sitting there. Certainly there are no trees or vegetation when you're that high up. It's just rock and barren and cold. And so at the summit, you sit there. And probably uh, we got to um, the ninth station. In all, all there are ten stations, the tenth being the very top. We got to around the eighth or ninth station uh, at 11 p.m., and we uh, slept from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m., uh, in the cold, uh, the smart people uh, paid a lot of money to sit in a shack where you're, you know, huddled up like sardines next to God knows who, uh, trying to get some sleep and warmth. Uh, if you're smart, or well, if you're not prepared like me, naive college student, you know, you sit outside of the shack, uh, kind of curled up in your jacket on a rock trying to get some sleep. <laughs> it's probably the worst sleep I've ever gotten. But then you wake up, you make the climb up to the top. It's still really cold. You're sitting there, um, and slowly you see the sun rise. It's Mount Fuji sits on the eastern coast of Japan. You look out towards the Pacific Ocean, and you see the sun rise far off in the distance. You know, the particular day that I was there, uh, it was cloudy and overcast. Uh, and so you couldn't see the ocean at all, but what you did see was a sea of clouds below you. And so all of a sudden, the sun comes up, and all of the earth, for as far as you can see, is lit up just with a radiance that uh, is so powerful and beautiful, not only because of the magnificent view but remember, you're just sitting in a, in a cold and what felt like a lifeless environment where you're just hanging on for dear life. And God's light, the light, comes. It warms you. Uh, there's, there's a passion and a gratefulness that comes over just admiring the beauty of it. I have a picture that I took uh, when I summited that. Um, of the sun rising, uh, sitting. It's just a printout from, you know, the printer here at church, but a printout of that uh, sitting above my desk where it says, Shuva Warena no Taiyo, which means the Lord is our sun. The Lord is the sun. And it comes from one of my favorite uh, praise songs in Japanese, but it is a reminder, in fact, that he is the light which gives us life. It is that light that is the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. It is that light which is the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It's that light that warms our souls, that breathes life where there was none, that brings light where there was only darkness. As we behold this, we are made new and brought to a new kind of love and appreciation for who God is and who we are in his sight. And one pastor put it this way. He says, We were made to know and treasure the glory of God above all things. And when we trade that treasure for images, everything is distorted. The sun of God's glory was made to shine at the center of the solar system of our soul. And when it does, 
all the planets of our life are held in their proper orbit. But when the sun is displaced, everything flies apart. The healing of the soul begins by restoring the glory of God to its flaming, all-attracting place at the center. As we are made to behold uh, this Jesus, so we're made to behold uh, this God who is the very glory that we long for. Uh, we are made to adore him. We are made new in his sight into our true selves. We are enlightened that we might engage in his mission as he sends us out to proclaim his goodness in the world. And it is only in that enlightenment, it is only in that recreation, it is only in that adoration of our creator that Paul can say, I commend myself in the sight of, to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Why? Because as he's commending himself, he's not, in fact, commending himself, but he's commending the God, the Savior. He's commending Christ who has made him new. Because Paul is not himself. We are not our own, but we belong, body and soul, to our beloved Savior, Jesus. We behold in order to proclaim, and because uh, it is because we proclaim the very one that we behold. I love... Uh, those verses that we just sung, um, in Christ whose glory fills the skies. Just saying, dark and cheerless is the morn, unaccompanied by thee. Joyless is the day's return, till thy mercy's beams I see, till thy inward light impart, glad my eyes, warm my heart. Visit then this soul of mine, pierce the gloom of sin and grief, fill me, radiancy divine, scatter all my unbelief, more and more, thyself display, shining to that perfect day. Let's pray. Father God, we do behold you this morning. We behold not only our dying Savior, as the women sung so beautifully several weeks ago, uh, but we behold, too, our risen Lord, as we were just reminded at Easter and as we wait for Pentecost coming next month. Lord, we behold you and your Son who has risen in power and glory that we might receive this ministry of mercy, that we might uh, be made new to proclaim your goodness uh, to ourselves, to our families, to our neighbors, and to the world watching. And so, God, I pray uh, that for those of us who are resting in Jesus, Lord, that you would rejuvenate our hearts to treasure who Jesus is and who we are in him. For those of us here who are wrestling, who are questioning, who are doubting, God, I pray that the warmth of your light would be an invitation to consider. Um, Father God, we can only do these things according to your help, and so that's what we ask for in Jesus' name. Amen.